Oh, my God. 
J.M. in the A.M. Five minutes after 6 a.m. Good morning, everyone. My name is Nahum Siegel. This is your Jewish Moments in the Morning radio program. It's Friday on this July 16th. I'm going to give a special happy birthday to those who are celebrating a birthday on July 16th. Happy birthday from all of us here at J.M. in the A.M. Uh, it's the seventh day in the month of Menachem Av. Uh, today is the seventh of the nine days. The uh, people, the Jewish people's schedule and our schedule is similar. <laughs> We're going to have uh, Tisha B'Av right after Shabbos through Sunday night. On Monday, we will present an encore presentation of JM and the AM and the stories of Rabbi Shlomo Kalbach, which has become a tradition here on the 10th of Av. And then we will... Um, be in Israel, please God, Monday night for Yom NCSY. Broadcasting on Tuesday morning from Yom NCSY between 6 and 9 a.m. Broadcasting from the Inbal Hotel with some very, very special guests. We're talking about, we, have an, we do have an amazing lineup, a really amazing lineup for Tuesday's show. Which means that um, you'll hear it Wednesday morning between 6 and 9. And then Thursday, uh, we'll be on Wednesday night at NCSY Kolel in Beit Meir. And uh, again, we'll have an opportunity to concentrate on the NCSY summer programs. Our intention is to be here Friday morning. Our intention is to be in studio live one week from today. So please, God, we will be live uh, one week from today here at uh, JM in the AM. That is the intention, and uh, we look forward to it. So a big, big broadcast week from Israel. We we sort of consider this the soft opening of season number 10 of the Nahum Siegel Network, which is pretty amazing. I want to thank everybody out there who's been supporting us and promoting us and letting people know how important an entity we are, et cetera, et cetera. Can't thank you enough, frankly. And, um, <clears throat> and we're looking forward to being in the Holy Land and broadcasting from there and especially this year, increasing the connection between Israel and the diaspora as only we can during this very, very challenging year. I don't think there's another way to say it. It has been a very, very challenging year. Um, oh, here it is. <laughs> You know when you're looking for something all day long and you think it's in your bag and you realize you left it in the studio? All right. That's that. Um, so that's the schedule. That's how things are going to work over the next uh, a couple of days, over the next few days. And I hope you'll be tuned in. Anybody out there who would like to help us with a special message during Yom and CSY, every time you go ahead and 
and uh, send a message to a camper, to our counselor, to a member of the administration, or NCSY in general. It helps our broadcast, no question about it. So remember, we're going to be recording Tuesday morning show from Yom NCSY um, on Monday night. So I guess we'll be recording it New York time midday on Monday, literally midday on Monday. So try to get us whatever messages you have for NCS wires, uh, try to get it to us by literally, you know, Monday morning, the latest. And um, that would be, how do you do it? It would be Nahum at NahumSiegel.com, Nahum, N-A-C-H-U-M, at Nahum Siegel, N-A-C-H-U-M, S-E-G-A-L.com, subject line, Yom N-C-S-Y. Nahum at NahumSiegel.com, subject line, Yom N-C-S-Y. We look forward to including it in our broadcast on a Tuesday morning. Uh, it's Erev Shabbos Parshas Dvarim. It's Erev Shabbos Chazon. Uh, according to what we have here, candle lighting is at 8.05. Candle lighting in New York is at 8.05. The fast will begin tomorrow night at 8.24, according to this, 8.24, uh, about 45 minutes before Shabbos ends. The fast will end Sunday about 9.09. And uh, that's the story. That's what we have here in terms of statistics. Looking forward to next week when it will be Erev Shabbos Nachamu. Nothing better than Nachamu, of course. 78 degrees, 82% humidity, winds are southwest at 5 miles per hour. Mix of sun and clouds, high of 94. Wow, <laughs> I didn't realize it's that amazingly hot today. 94 degrees here. Last day in the 90s, partly cloudy tonight, low 76. Well, tomorrow, afternoon thunderstorms, a high of, oh, 84. I thought it was 89. Oh, maybe it's 89. Somewhere in the high 80s, what can I tell you? Uh, right now, Yerushalayim is at 89. Guilford, New York, our friends at Camp Missouri, they've got 70 degrees. And uh, 85 uh, is the high for Sunday. You'd think that uh, Sunday would be hotter here because obviously it's Tisha B'Av, But the high is expected to be uh, 85 degrees on Sunday. Um, Shabbat Shalom, Petach Tikva, according to listener Tikva. I hope listener Hadas Emuna is doing well. Shalom Hadas Emuna. Um, we were hoping that Malcolm Honline, in fact, he announced that he'd be with us this morning. We were hoping Malcolm Honline would be with us this morning, but his flight schedule, based on his uh, current flight schedule, he will not be able to join us this morning here at JM in the AM, and I apologize for that. Please, God, please, God, for real, our next weekly update will be next Friday, the 23rd. Please, God. And my apologies, but uh, we did think originally that it would work out. And unfortunately, uh, it has uh, not worked out. So our next weekly update, please, God, will be on the 23rd, a week from today, the day I get back uh, from Israel, the day after I get back from Israel. And uh, he'll be back uh, at that point, obviously, and We'll hopefully continue the Friday weekly update tradition. Harry Rothenberg's going to join us. Words about Devarim and uh, Shabbos Chazon. Rabbi Yudin, of course, live from Israel. And a whole bunch more happening here on a Friday morning Erev Shabbos at JM and the AM. Um, Rabbi Beryl Wine, you know that he has been amazing, as always, with his lectures. 
Um, we're going to try to do this one in its entirety between now and uh, let's say 715 uh, as we could wrap up our series on Jewish societies in retrospect. These are the Jews in the Ottoman Empire and Palestine. It's Rabbi Beryl Wine, whose lectures are available at 1-800-499-WEIN and RabbiWine.com, RabbiWEIN.com. You're listening to JM in the AM. Tonight's lecture concerns itself uh, with the Jews in Ottoman Palestine before uh, England took over after the First World War. The Ottoman Empire uh, existed for uh, 500 years. When an empire exists for 500 years, and let's say you're living in year 300 of the 500, so you're convinced that it'll be there forever because it was there 300 years before you. There's no reason to think it won't keep on going after you. But history shows that uh, no empire exists forever. No country's dominance over others exists forever. And that uh, the uh, rise and descent of empires is really the story of history. The Ottoman Empire was founded by a, uh, someone from the Caucasus, a Turk, by the name of Osman in the uh, 13th century. The Europeans changed Osman to Ottoman. I guess they spoke Svartit. <laughs> and that's why it's called the Ottoman Empire. And uh, the goal of the Ottoman Empire was to destroy the Byzantine Empire. The Byzantine Empire was the Christian Empire. It was the eastern part of the previous Roman Empire. It had existed from the time of uh, Constantine the Great in about 320 uh, for almost a thousand years. Its capital was Constantinople. And in Constantinople, there was a great church called the Church of St. Sophia, built by Constantine. And it was the center of Eastern Christianity, Greek Orthodox, Russian Orthodox, the Slavic or, uh, Orthodox religions, in contradistinction to the Roman Catholics. And uh, it was a very powerful empire, and it ruled over Palestine. And it was terribly anti-Jewish. Uh, to the extent that uh, the Jewish community in Palestine evaporated under its rule. Uh, when the Ramban came here in 1267, he could not find the 10 Jews in Jerusalem. The Byzantines had uh, benefited from the Crusades. The Crusades had turned the mosques on the Temple Mount into churches. Uh, but the uh, Ottomans, who were Muslims, but not Arabs, were determined to crush the Byzantine Empire 
and restore the entire Middle East to Muslim control. And they were fierce and they were warlike and they waged war constantly for 100, 150 years against the Byzantines. And finally, they conquered the Byzantines. And they took over Constantinople, renamed it Istanbul, and pushed into Europe. Uh, they uh, conquered all of the Balkans, including the city of Belgrade. They conquered Greece, large parts of Hungary, up to the Romanian border. And, uh, and they were at the gates of Vienna. There the uh, Pope rallied the Christian powers in Europe to stop them. And that was like the high point, the zenith of the Ottoman Empire. And from then on, which were the middle of the 16th century on, the Ottoman Empire began a slow but steady decline. Now the ruler of the Ottoman Empire, they had different rulers. Some of them are very well known to us. For instance, Suleiman the Magnificent. He was a very modest person. But he built the walls of Jerusalem, the walls that exist today. He built them on the uh, foundation of uh, many of the walls that Herod had built at the time of the temple. But he built them now in medieval style as you can see with the slits for the archers to shoot through, the turrets, the walkways on top of the walls. And he made Jerusalem in his day impregnable because there was no way to destroy those walls. He also, uh, they took back the churches and converted them back into mosques the Al-Aqsa Mosque, and the Mosque of the Golden Dome, the Mosque of Omar. Now, uh, there were many Jews under Ottoman rule, and uh, the Ottomans were uh, not friendly to the Jews. They had many decrees against the Jews. You couldn't walk on the same sidewalk as a Muslim. You had to wear... Uh, shoes of two different colors, all sorts of shameful things. But uh, in relative comparison to the treatment of the Jews in Christian Europe, they were very benign. And they had a concept called DIMI, D-H-I-M-M-I. The DIMI concept was that aside from the Muslims, the Koran, which is the true faith, according to them, uh, there are what they call people of the book, which is a phrase that Muhammad used. Jews use it to name themselves, but it's really, the origin is really Muslim, not Jewish. The people of the book 
that believed in the Bible. So they believed in Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and Sarah, Rebecca, Leah, Rachel. They also believed that there was a person called Yishmael. Uh, they were the people of the book. And the book was the basis for the Muslim religion in many respects. And therefore, the people of the book were not considered to be infidels per se, which the Christians were, but they were considered to be dhimmis. Dhimmis mean second or third class citizens who have a right to live in the country but under Muslim rule and under the decrees and laws of the Muslim rulers. But they are not to be expelled. And uh, basically speaking, uh, for a thousand years, the Jews in this part of the world uh, did not know what a pogrom was. Whereas in Europe, it was an everyday occurrence. The uh, relationship of the Ottoman Empire to the Jews, therefore, was mixed. Uh, in order to be an officer or to have a high position in the court of the Sultan, one had to convert to Islam. But many Jews uh, converted only pro forma on the outside, and they remained Jews on the inside, and they held high positions, and uh, the Muslims winked at it. Uh, they were aware that the Jewish converts were uh, mostly insincere, but uh, they put up with it because they needed them. The Jews knew languages, the Jews had relatives in Christian countries, the Jews could uh, do trade with Christian countries, and uh, therefore uh, the Jews were, uh, if not welcome, they were certainly not objected to. After the uh, expulsion of the Jews from Spain in 1492, large numbers of Sephardic Jews, Spanish Jews, came to live under the Ottomans. And there were great Jewish communities in Syria, in Aleppo and in Damascus. There were great Jewish communities in Egypt, in Old Cairo, Fostat, and in Alexandria. But there was almost no Jewish settlement in the land of Israel, per se. There were a lot of Jews that lived in Turkey, in Adrianople, in Constantinople, in Istanbul, in Beirut, but not here. In the uh, 16th century, you first had Jewish settlement in the land of Israel especially in Svat and in the Galil, and a small Jewish settlement here in Jerusalem.
Now, uh, after every tragedy, a major tragedy in the Jewish world, uh, there is a revival of the messianic spirit. Because uh, according to Talmudic sources, the uh, messianic era is always preceded by a uh, time of troubles, time of pain and travail. It's compared to childbirth. And uh, the uh, Jews who settled here in the land of Israel uh, had uh, messianic fervor. So there was an attempt to renew the Sanhedrin because according to Maimonides, the uh, renewal of uh, a Jewish court system has to precede the Messianic era. So there was a determined effort to renew the Sanhedrin. Now you couldn't renew the Sanhedrin because the ordination for the Sanhedrin, the smicha, had expired for over uh, a, a millennia, a millennium. And only somebody who had the smicha could give the smicha. So how could you renew the Sanhedrin? So for that, again, Maimonides came to the rescue, and uh, he posited that if the rabbis living in the land of Israel gathered together and decided that one of them was worthy of the smicha, then they could grant him the smicha, and then he in turn would grant the smicha to others. This happened in the 1540s. Rabbi Yaakov Beirav received the smicha, and he gave smicha to others, including Rabbi Yosef Karo, the author of the Shulchan Aruch. But he was opposed by other rabbis in the country, especially the rabbi in Jerusalem. And uh, eventually it became clear that you could not have a Sanhedrin that half the rabbis agreed to and half the rabbis didn't agree to. It would only defeat the purpose. So the idea died. Perhaps that was the idea that inspired Rabbi Yosef Karo to write the Shulchan Aruch. Because if you couldn't have a live Sanhedrin, you could have a book that was the Sanhedrin that decided, so to speak, all matters of Jewish law that were then on the table. In any event, the messianic fervor uh, burst through completely in the Ottoman Empire a hundred years later when Shabzai Tzvi uh, proclaimed himself to be the Messiah. Now Shabzai Tzvi lived, originally he was from Egypt, he lived in uh, the land of Israel. Uh, his uh, assistant and publicist was uh, Noson Oazosi, Nathan of Gaza. And he established himself as the Jewish Messiah. And uh, 
approximately a third of the Jewish people believed in him, including many great rabbis. And he held court as though he were the Messiah. People traveled from all over the world to see him. Naturally, there was a fee. No Messiah comes cheap. <laughs> and it, uh, it was the talk of Europe, not only Jewish Europe, but the non-Jewish Europe as well. It's mentioned in all the diplomatic uh, messages of the ambassadors of the time uh, that somehow the Jews have a Messiah in the land of Israel. The Sultan uh, tired of the game and he arrested Shafzai Tzvi and he put him in house arrest in Turkey. But uh, Nathan said, uh, this is only a test for the faithful to see if you really believe in him. And only those who really believe in him will be privileged to witness the redemption. And therefore, uh, he uh, continued to be the Messiah. People still came to see him in, their, in where he was under house arrest. Eventually, the sultan tired of that as well, and he told Shabzai Tzvi, either you publicly uh, convert to Islam, or I will behead you. So he publicly converted to Islam, and he became a courtier in the sultan's court. And needless to say, that deflated the Jewish world completely, and it has effect until today. So the Jews remained throughout the 1600s, 1700s, in these circumstances under Ottoman rule, with a very, very limited population in the land of Israel. Beginning in the middle of the 1700s, for some reason, because there's no logic to this, and no logic to anything in Jewish history, Jews started to come to the land of Israel. European Jews, Ashkenazic Jews mainly, but Sephardic Jews as well. They came mainly to observe the commandments that exist here in the land of Israel and to be buried here because according to Jewish tradition being buried in Israel is a uh, kapora, it's a uh, forgiveness for sins. So Jews came, they didn't come in big numbers but they came. So for the first time the Ottoman Empire is faced since the uh, expulsion of Jews from Spain. So uh, 200 years later, all of a sudden, there's a trickle of Jews that are coming to live in the country. Now, you didn't need a passport then. You didn't need a visa. The borders were open. Whoever wanted to come could come. The country itself was completely desolate. 
had no economy, had no natural resources, had a very small population. The city of Jerusalem probably had a thousand people. And uh, the main other cities, Svat, Tiberias, Hebron, were equally as small. And they were not Jewish. The population there was Arab. And much of it was Bedouin Arab, meaning they were nomads. They didn't uh, settle anywhere. And it was a backwater of the Ottoman Empire. Uh, there were places where the Ottoman Empire could collect taxes, Egypt, Syria, because Iraq, because those were places that had an economy. But here where there was no economy, there was no one to collect taxes from. The system of the Ottoman Empire was decentralized rule. In other words, the Sultan was in his palace in Istanbul and he appointed somebody to run Syria and he appointed somebody to run Iraq and somebody to run Egypt, and he appointed somebody to run Palestine. Now, Palestine was not seen as a good appointment because you couldn't make money on it. There was no way to uh, really become wealthy as the rulers of the other provinces of the Ottoman Empire were able to become wealthy. And therefore, uh, the rulers of Palestine appointed by the Ottomans were, uh, had three qualities to them. They were ignorant, they were cruel, and they were greedy. And uh, that only made the situation in the country worse. Uh, it was corrupt from beginning to end. And it is into this society that Jews started to come, that they began to move to the country. So in the 1700s, Gershon Kittiver, who was the brother-in-law of the Baal Shem Tov, came. Uh, other Hasidim came. In the early 1800s, the students of, and disciples of the Gaon of Vilna came. Uh, other Chabad came, European Jews, Eastern European Ashkenazic Jews came. Now the, the Arabs had only known Smartic Jews. So it's an interesting thing. The Arabs called any foreigner a Frank which was the name of a French knight who in the Crusades, they were Franks. So the Arabs called the Sephardic Jews Franks, even though they had nothing to do with France. When the Ashkenazim came, so they took the Arab uh, statement that the Sephardim were Franks. 
And that's the origin of the fact that until today, many sections of the Ashkenazic world call Sephardim Franks. Now, the, the uh, Sultan had allowed the Jews a certain amount of religious autonomy. For instance, Jews were entitled to have their own courts. The chief rabbi, so to speak, of any given country was called the Chacham Bashi. Chacham Bashi meant that he was the Chacham, which is the name, the Sephardic name for a rabbi. And Bashi meant that he was appointed by the Turks and that he had official status. So there was a Chacham Bashi here in the land of Israel who was official. The Ashkenazim came here. They didn't recognize the Chacham Bashi. They did not agree to the Sephardic customs. They wanted to have their own shechita, their own meat. They wanted to impose their own customs. They dressed differently. All of which caused uh, great internal strife in the small Jewish community that existed here in the 1800s. And uh, a lot of what goes on today between, let's say, uh, Shas and the uh, other religious parties is a carryover from the internal divisions that occurred in the 1800s. The Ashkenazim petitioned to have their own shrita, and since it was all corrupt, so it was only a question of paying off. And so they eventually were able to do so. To further complicate the matter, in the 1800s, all of the major powers in Europe were jockeying for position to take over the Ottoman Empire. The Ottoman Empire was weak, was corrupt, was called the sick man of Europe. So Russia wanted a peace. Russia wanted to, the uh, Bosporus and the Dardanelles to give it access to the Mediterranean. And that's what the Crimean War was fought in the 1860s, 1850s rather, to prevent Russia. So France and England supported Turkey against Russia to prevent Russia from reaching the Mediterranean. Uh, France wanted, uh, Napoleon had already uh, conquered parts of the Middle East in his campaigns in the early 1800s. Napoleon uh, came here to the land of Israel. He besieged the city of Acre, which Akko, uh, near Haifa, but he could not conquer it. But he had uh, rule over Egypt. Uh, England was always interested in asserting itself in its imperialist days for control of the Middle East. And so slowly the Ottoman Empire was receding. 
uh, Greece broke off and became an independent country. It was a great cause of England, Lord Byron and others who supported Greek independence. And then uh, parts of the Balkans broke off. The Slavs broke away. Serbia became a country. And the Austrian Empire, the Habsburgs, uh, threw them out of Hungary. And then they took over uh, Kosovo and Bosnia and Herzegovina. So it looked like whatever you wanted to take from Turkey, you could take. The Ottoman Empire was, uh, for all purposes, uh, a dead man walking. And now the Jews came into the country, small in number, but they were coming. There were uh, uh, 25, 30,000 Jews in the country already. And uh, we all know that uh, 25, 30,000 Jews make noise like 130,000. And since there never were any accurate numbers or population figures, etc., it posed a problem to the Ottoman Empire. Because it's all right to have dhimmis, but these people, first of all, they didn't speak Arabic and they didn't want to speak Arabic, they didn't speak Turkish. They had no intention of assimilating into the general population. They had no respect for the Turkish government. So what are you supposed to do with them? But the Jews were uh, fortunate, uh, we could use that word, because of the fact that all of the European powers created consulates, footholds here in the land of Israel and especially in Jerusalem. So there was an English consulate and the Anglican church sent missionaries to the country and built schools in the country. The French had a consulate. The French sent also missionaries. Not only missionaries, they sent Jewish organizations, the famous Alliance, that made schools and taught French culture and French language throughout the Middle East and here in Palestine and Jerusalem as well. So these things whittled away at the Ottoman Empire. There was the Russian compound, which exists until today, that Putin wants it back, and we're stupid enough to talk to him about it. So the Russians, even though in, in Russia, Jews were persecuted unmercifully, here the Russians said, well, they are Russian subjects of the Tsar, and our job is to protect them from the Turks, to protect them from the Ottomans. And therefore, and then there was the famous Austrian consulate, which was the biggest, the Habsburgs, who uh, also had great pretensions here. And in the late 1800s, the Germans entered here, the Kaiser came, 
Now, there had been an organization called the Templar Knights during the Crusades. The Templar Knights were German, German Christians. They were called Templar because they fought for the temple. And they had established themselves on the island of Rhodes. And uh, the Kaiser uh, revived and refreshed the idea of Templar Knights. And the Kaiser encouraged German immigration to Palestine. The idea of red roofs, which you see throughout the country, that was brought by the Kaiser, by the Templar Knights. They were the first ones to make these red terracotta roofs. And the Kaiser thought that he was going to rule Palestine. It was part of the grand scheme of Germany's place in the sun. In fact, there was a very large German population here, the, the German colony, that existed until World War II. In World War II, England uh, rounded them all up and uh, exiled them because they were enemy aliens. But uh, the state of Israel has paid compensation uh, to all the Germans that own property here uh, before the Second World War. So uh, it's a, uh, an amalgamation of all sorts of different forces here. Now let's throw into the mix Zionism. Beginning uh, pre-Zionism begins in the 1870s when the organization of the Lovers of Zion existed in Eastern Europe, the Chovev Then there were the Biluim, that was a small group of people that immigrated, that came to work the land here. And then there was Herzl. Now Herzl's great dream was that he was going to make a Jewish state somewhere in the world preferably in Palestine, but if not in Palestine, wherever he could. Therefore, he agreed to take Uganda when it was offered. Turkey viewed Zionism as its mortal enemy. The Ottoman Empire viewed it, and correctly so, that if Zionism succeeded, the Ottoman Empire would collapse completely. And therefore, uh, its attitude towards the Jewish community then existing in Palestine began to change for the worse. They no longer wanted to treat them as dimmies. They wanted to treat them as enemies. They felt that the Jews would subvert the Ottoman rule here. Also, by the fact that Jews were coming, some sort of economy was developing, money was coming from overseas, Jewish money was coming from Eastern Europe on a regular basis, and the Zionist movement 
uh, created organizations such as the Jewish National Fund and the Karen Ayasod, which was investing money in the country, purchasing land, and the, the Ottoman Empire saw all of this as subverting them, destroying their uh, hegemony over the country. They wouldn't be able to control it. And therefore, uh, beginning in 1900, for the 15, uh, 20 years till England took over the country, the, the Ottoman Empire instituted a reign of terror here against the Jews. So that the early Jewish settlements, Merchavia and the other ones in the Galil, the Jews who lived in Jaffa, and the Jews who lived here in Jerusalem, lived under terrible conditions of poverty, and the Turks stirred up the Arabs with promises of booty and loot. And uh, now you had, if not pogroms, but you had armed attacks on a regular basis. There were two responses by the Jews. One was to try and negotiate with the Turks, to, so to speak, try and prove their loyalty. The other one, which was favored by the Zionists and uh, especially by the new Zionists that were coming here to, who were not religious, who were basically left-wing idealists, was that they were going to defend themselves. That the... Uh, the days of the Jewish people being passive in face of persecution was going to end. And they organized an organization called Hashomer, the Watchmen. And there were groups uh, uh, that fought off the Bedouin Arabs, uh, that made raids on the Arab communities, and that fought the Turks. Now, the Turks had uh, borrowed money from the Rothschilds, as did all of Europe, and they were gonna build a railroad together with the British and the French to connect the Suez Canal with uh, the uh, Persian Gulf an overland railroad. Uh, one branch was gonna go down to Saudi Arabia, what is today Saudi Arabia, to Mecca. But the main branch was to go through Syria, over what is present day Lebanon, down through where Rosh Hanikra is, down the coast of Palestine, into Egypt, into Alexandria, and eventually to link up with the Suez Canal. And the Turks started to build that railroad. And it was the major source of employment and wealth 
during the uh, last part of the 19th and the early part of the 20th century. The Jews welcomed the railroad because they saw it as a sign of modernization. And the Jews felt that if the Turks somehow could be modernized, uh, they would agree, somehow they would agree to, with the Zionist dream. Now, the Zionists never were practical. That's why we have a state. Why should the Turks agree under any circumstances that they're going to give away Palestine to the Zionists. But that was the belief, just as the belief was later that England was going to give it to you. In 1904, there was a revolution in Turkey. And a group called the Young Turks came to power. They were nationalists, uh, they wanted the sultan and the old ways gone. They wanted to modernize the country. To paraphrase someone, they wanted to make Turkey great again. <laughs> and uh, they raised an army. They fought wars, some successful, some unsuccessful. But now the power of the Sultan was almost non-existent. One of the young Turks was a man by the name of Kemal Pasha, who was a military genius. He would later become the ruler of Turkey and change his name to Ataturk and enforce the modernization of Turkey and to get rid of the religion within Turkey, which has been restored now in our time to the detriment of all. In any event, the young Turks were bitterly anti-Zionist. And they were not willing under any circumstance uh, to uh, relax the hold of the Turks on Palestine. And they raised taxes. They sent extra soldiers into the country. And they absolutely persecuted the Jews from 1900 to 1920. Now, uh, Germany had made an alliance with Turkey. It sent the uh, famous German general to train the Turkish army. Uh, Turkey had ordered uh, two battleships that were being built in the British naval yards. Turkey was going to take on the West. So when the First World War broke out in 1914, after it had been two Balkan Wars in 1912 and 1913, at which Turkey was defeated both times, the uh, British 
took the battleships away from Turkey. But Turkey entered the war on the side of Germany and Austria. Now the Turks, uh, in the middle of the war in 1915, there was a large Christian Armenian population in Turkey. The Turks held that the Christians were subversive and therefore they exiled them deep into the Caucasus. During that exile, the process of the exile, one and a half million Armenians died. It was the first genocide of the 20th century. Turkey has never owned up to it. And it's a sore point always between all the countries that have relations with Turkey. It's a subject that cannot be raised. They didn't do anything even though we have movies of what they did do. In any event, uh, Turkey tried to invade Russia. Russia was then with France and England, the Allies. So it tried to invade Russia from the south, and it met disaster. J.M. in the A.M., we will... Um we will wrap up our lecture on the Ottoman Empire in Palestine coming up with our barrel wine right after our news from Israel here at JM and the AM. Good morning, all. It's Friday on uh, July the 16th. A very happy birthday to those who are celebrating birthdays on July 16th from all of us here at JM and the AM. Um, it's Friday. It's the seventh day. Of the nine days. This coming Saturday night, tomorrow night. Tishabov will begin. It'll end Sunday night. Monday will be at Yom NCSY in Israel. And Tuesday morning you'll hear that show right here at JM in the AM. If you have a special message you'd like to include for someone who's with uh, Yom NCSY this coming, uh, this coming week... Get it to us as soon as possible because we'll be recording the Yom NCSY Tuesday morning show when it's midday here on Monday in New York City. So get us your message. Nahum at NahumSiegel.com, Nahum at NahumSiegel.com, subject line, Yom NCSY. Simple as that. JM in the AM, feel free to comment on the app. Go to the NSN, Nahum Siegel Network app for Android and iPhone and comment away. We certainly welcome your comments. Candle lighting at 8.05 on this Erev Shabbos Parshas Dvarim, Erev Shabbos Chazon. 8.05 is candle lighting in New York. Tishabov is coming up. Our uh, program on Monday morning between 6 and 9 will be an encore presentation of our annual, I mean somewhat annual, <laughs> 10th of Av Shlomo Kalbach Stories show. So plenty of stories from Shlomo Kalbach coming up on the 10th of Av. That was always the compromise we made for the morning after Tishabov was to play the uh, stories of Rav Shlomo Kalbach. And that'll be happening uh, 
this coming Monday between 6 and 9, an encore presentation. Then, of course, Tuesday, Wednesday, and Thursday from Israel. Friday, please, God, we'll be back here in the studio at JM in the AM. Also, we thought our weekly update would take place today. Uh, unfortunately, Malcolm Holmline's travel schedule in the end did not allow for it. So our next weekly update, please, God, at 7.40 a.m. Eastern time on a Friday will be one week from today on the 23rd of July. That is the intention, and uh, we hope to present it on the 23rd of July. Golly, it's on the background. We'll do our news from Israel coming up. It is America's one and only Jewish Moments in the Morning radio program. Heard on listeners-sponsored digital radio. Around the world, the web at NahumSegal.com and the NahumSegal Network, and, of course, the beloved NSNF. I want to thank uh, wonderful listener Betty Ehrenberg for her very generous donation in memory of the great Mayor Weingarten. Galay Tzal, Israel Army Radio News, next. Galay Tzal, התפשטות זן דלתא בישראל, ראש הממשלה נפתלי בנט, יקיים בעוד זמן קצר דיון מיוחד בקריה בתל אביב, בעקבות העלייה המתמשכת בתחלואה, בהשתתפות שרים וגורמי מקצוע מהמשרדים השונים. כתבתנו המדינית מוריה אסרף וולברג מוסרת כי במהלך הדיון תיבחנה בין היתר הרחבת מתווה התו השמח לכלל אירועי ההתכנסות מעל מאה איש, הרחבת מערך האכיפה והעלאת גובה הכנסות, וכן בחינה מחדש של מתווה הטיסות היוצאות והנכנסות לישראל. בתוך כך משרד הבריאות הודיע כי ספרד וקירגיסטן תצטרפנה לרשימת המדינות בסיכון מרבי מיום שישי הבא, 23 ביולי, ויציאה אליהן תחויב באישור ועדת חריגים. כמו כן, לרשימת המדינות שמחייבות בידוד ביתי בשבעה ארצה, תצטרפנה בשבוע הבא, בין היתר, בריטניה, גאורגיה, טורקיה וקפריסין. כתבתנו לענייני תעופה, עינב קרנר, מזכירה כי החל מהיום, כלל הנוסעים השבים לישראל, כולל ממדינות ירוקות, נדרשים לשהות בבידוד ביתי במשך 24 שעות, או עד קבלת תוצאות הבדיקה שבוצעה בנתב"ג. הבוקר, כאמור, עודכנו נתוני הקורונה המצביעים על שיא מאומתים מאז תחילת ההתפרצות הנוכחית, כאשר ביממה האחרונה אובחנו 855 חיובים חדשים לנגיף. מספר החולים במצב קשה לעומת זאת ירד ומונה כעת 52 חולים. רחפן, רחפן של צה"ל נפל לפני שעה קלה בשטח לבנון במהלך פעילות איסוף מודיעין שגרתית. ההערכה היא כי הסיבה לנפילת הרחפן היא תקלה טכנית במערכות. מדובר צה"ל נמסר כי אין חשש לדליפת מידע בעקבות הנפילה. כתבנו הצבאי דורון קדוש מזכיר כי באירוע דומה לפני יומיים, כלי טיס בלתי מאויש של צה"ל נפל בעקבות תקלה טכנית ליד הכפר טובאס בשומרון. באירופה מניין ההרוגים בשיטפונות הכבדים שפוקדים את היבשת עלה ליותר ממאה, כאשר אלף איש עדיין נעדרים באזורי האסון במדינות גרמניה, בלגיה והולנד. קיים חשש מרבי לגורל התושבים בכפרים שהגישה עליהם נחסמה עקב מפולות בוץ שנגרמו מההצפות, ומאות חיילים נשלחו לסייע לצוותי החילוץ באזור. נשיא ארצות הברית ג'ו ביידן וקנצלרית גרמניה אנגלה מרקל הביעו הלילה תנחומים למשפחות ההרוגים. בג'לג'וליה כוחות רבים של מערך הכבאות משתתפים כעת במאמצים לכיבוי שרפה אשר פרצה לפני שעות אחדות במחסן בעיר. נכון לשעה זו לא ידוע על נפגעים או לכודים במבנה, ולוחמי האש פועלים על מנת למנוע את השתתפות השרפה למקומות נוספים. באולפן גלגלצ נמסר כי נכון לשעה זו לא מורגשים עומסי תנועה חריגים באזור. 
מזג האוויר היום מעונן חלקית עד בהיר עם עלייה קלה של הטמפרטורות והכבדה בעומס החום. במהלך סוף השבוע הטמפרטורות תוספנה לעלות ועומס חום כבד ישרור ברוב אזורי הארץ. אלה החדשות שעורכת עמית נגבי, בצוות בן שני. Coming up, Harry Rothenberg with the Parshas Dvarim. We'll do that coming up here at JM and the AM and plenty more. First, let's conclude the lecture by Beryl Wine on Jews in the Ottoman Empire at JM and the AM. Turkey tried to invade Russia. Russia was then with France and England, the Allies. So it tried to invade Russia from the south. And it meant disaster. So the Allies thought... that Turkey's a pushover. And therefore, Churchill came up with the harebrained scheme that he was going to invade Turkey through the peninsula of Gallipoli. But the problem is Gallipoli was commanded by Kemal Pasha, who was a tremendously skillful general And the uh, allies uh, did not possess his equal. And Gallipoli turned into an allied disaster, such a disaster that Churchill had to resign from the war cabinet. The Turks expelled all of the Zionist leaders from Palestine. The Ben-Gurion was in New York. Of Cook was in Switzerland and then in London. Everybody was somewhere else. Nobody was in the country. And the whole Zionist enterprise, so to speak, teetered because uh, it had no leadership and there was no immigration. And not only that, the Jewish population declined by 25 percent during the war. And the Jews were starved, and there was disease. It was a terrible time. Had uh, Germany and Turkey won the war, you know, that's one of the great ifs, because as late as 1918, it looked like Germany was going to win the war. So what would have happened here? Undoubtedly, what happened is that all the Jews would have been expelled. Certainly the European Jews. But Turkey did not win the war. And out of the war came the Balfour Declaration and later the British Mandate and the greatest revival of the Zionist movement that they could have ever imagined. Now, when England took over, and we still have vestiges of that today, they kept a lot of Turkish law in the country, especially regarding real estate. So uh, in this country, you have Israeli law, British law, and Turkish law, and a smattering of Jewish law. And that's why we have the most lawyers per capita of any country in the world. 
And that's why everything is so complicated here. And the Ottoman Empire collapsed. Out of the Ottoman Empire, Kemal Pasha took over the country. He renamed himself Ataturk, and he created modern Turkey. Greece attempted to invade Turkey and take territory, and uh, Ataturk defeated them, took back all the territory, but out of the Ottoman Empire were carved artificial countries which exist until today. Iraq, Lebanon, Syria, Jordan, Arabia, Yemen. All of these countries were drawn on a map with a pencil. And they're countries. Even though the population is basically Arab, and the Arab population is homogeneous, and most of the populations do not have much loyalty to the governments that rule them, because they see themselves as part of a greater uh, pan-Arab, pan-Muslim world that they belong to. When uh, the uh, Ataturk took over, he banned any public display of religion. All the mosques were closed, all the churches were closed, all the synagogues were closed. Everybody had to go underground. You could not wear the fez or Arab dress in the street. You couldn't wear a kippah. You could recognize Jews in uh, Istanbul by who was wearing a baseball cap. Any public display of any religion was banned. He did to Turkey what the communists did to Russia, to the Soviet Union completely eliminated religion. The only thing is, just as in the Soviet Union when the communist regime collapsed, religion came back, because it had always been there. So the same thing here we see in our time, that the uh, religion, the Muslim, all has come back and come back in, in, in a strong and even extremist form. There was a Jewish population in Turkey, between the 25 to 40,000 Jews. They still live there today. They're very, very low key. Turkey uh, never joined in the wars against Israel. Uh, it has a, a strange relationship with us. Sometimes good, sometimes different. But out of all of the Muslim countries, it's the country that has, so to speak, the most normal relations with us. I mean, you've got Turkish Airlines that flies here. They have, uh, for a long period of time, uh, there was tremendous Jewish tourism to Turkey. 
It was Turkish tourism to Israel. The uh, terrorism has diminished that. But uh, it's a uh, process. But the Jews who had to live here in the beginning of the 20th century under Ottoman rule had a very, very terrible, terrible time of it. And that's one of the miracles, so to speak. It's certainly one of the historic events that the uh, Allies won the First World War and not the Central Powers, because otherwise there certainly would not have been a possibility of the state of Israel or Jewish existence here in the Holy Land coming into existence. This concludes this lecture by Rabbi. J.M. in the A.M. Good morning, all. A big thank you to Rabbi Wine. What a series, huh? What a series. America, United Kingdom, Ottoman Empire, Jewish Societies in Retrospect. A recent series from Rabbi Barrel Wine. Information about all of his series and all of his lectures, it's 1-800-499-WEIN. 1-800-499-WEIN. In a moment, we'll go to Harry Rothenberg. His words about Parshas Dvarim. Rabbi Yudin's going to be joining us from Israel regarding Parshas Dvarim and Shabbos Chazon coming up. I do want to remind everybody that there is a um, a virtual Isaiah Peace Wall gathering for Tisha B'Av. You know, normally we're actually at the Isaiah Peace Wall. Well, this year I wouldn't have been because I'm going to be on a flight. But uh, normally we are on a uh, or at I should say the Isaiah Peace Wall to Davin Mincha and have a uh, an inspiring presentation Tisha B'Av afternoon. It is happening virtually this year, starting at 1:45 p.m. Eastern Time. Uh, I can't suggest strongly enough to um, participate. How do you participate? Get the Zoom link. Get the Zoom link by writing to Shuli, S-H-U-L-I, at thebayit.org. Shuli, S-H-U-L-I, at thebayit, B-A-Y-I-T, dot org. They'll send you a Zoom link. You'll be able to participate virtually in the uh, Tishabov Isaiah Peace Wall um, service and inspiring presentation. That's what I would say. In this era of uh, unprecedented anti-Semitic episodes in the United States, in this era where we just saw Israel being vilified by the world for defending themselves against thousands of Hamas rockets, during this era, it is more important than ever to um, be as strong as possible and be as vigilant and diligent as possible when it comes to these issues. And I certainly hope all of you will uh, will join in. Shuli, S-H-U-L-I, at thebayit.org. Shuli at thebayit.org. Harry Rothenberg has words regarding uh, Parshas Dvarim and specifically the upcoming important day of Tisha B'Av here at JM in the AM. The sages tell us that the Mashiach, the fellow who's going to usher in the Messianic age, will be born on a very specific day of the year. If you had to guess, you've got some great possibilities. Purim, really happy day. Passover, freedom, redemption. Maybe Rosh Hashanah, New Year, rebirth. How about Hanukkah, let him bring the light. But no. The sages tell us that the Mashiach will be, or maybe already was, born on Tisha B'Av, the saddest day of the year. Well, that seems like a head scratcher, or is it? Think about where the Messianic line began. Moab, the ancestor of Rus, Ruth, 
who's the great-grandmother of King David, from whom the Messianic line is going to come. He comes from the union of Lot and Lot's daughter, who seduced him after the destruction of Sodom, thinking that the world had been destroyed. And then the line continues also through Yehuda, leader of the 12 tribes, and Tamar. When he was intimate with her, he thought that she was a woman of ill repute. And then later, Boaz, the 80-year-old leader of the Jewish people, marries Rus, the 40-year-old Moabite convert. That relationship would have made tabloid headlines or been clickbait if it were nowadays. And then King David, David Amalek himself, he marries Bathsheba, and the line's gonna continue through that. That relationship, though technically okay, seemed to have the appearance of impropriety. So why would God draw the messianic line through these relationships that seemingly were scandalous? Maybe to show us, to tell us, that even in the darkest places, where you'd least expect to find any, there is light. And that is our job as the Jewish people, to be a light unto the nations, to be human flashlights, shining light into dark places where no one else can see any, and no one else would ever expect to see any. And I can't remember a time since I was born when this job has been more important than right now, because Tisha B'Av came early this year. It feels like we've been suffering through it, that terrible day, for months now. Meron and Surfside, we have to lift up the spirits of everyone to say it looks bad, but it's from God. There's light at the end of the tunnel, just like our forefathers did. Back in Egypt, there was a very special forest. Yaakov, Jacob, had cut down trees that his grandfather, Abraham, Avraham, had planted in Israel, brought them down to Egypt and replanted them, and told the Jews, when you leave Egypt, and you will leave, cut these trees down, bring them with you into the wilderness, because I know prophetically that you're going to need this particular type of wood to build a tabernacle, the Mishkan. And so for all the brutal years of slavery and torture at the hands of the Egyptians, the Jews were able to pass by that forest of faith, saying, Grandpa Yaakov told us when he planted this, we're going someday to get out of here. And then Yaakov's son, Yosef, Joseph, did the same thing. Before his death, on his deathbed, he could have asked his brothers and his royal retinue as the ruler of the land for one dying request. When I die, let me be brought up and buried in Israel, near my father, grandfather, great-grandfather, the patriarchs, no offense meant to Egypt. Won't you indulge that dying request? And they would have, but he didn't ask for that. Instead, he asked his brothers to promise that when they'd leave Egypt, they or their descendants would bring his bones up to Israel and bury them there. Why? Because he wanted the Jews to have another signpost, to lift up their faith, so they'd be able to say to each other, there is no way Yosef would have allowed for his body after death to be embalmed and mummified here in Egypt unless he knew with certainty that someday we are going to get out of this. We're going to be redeemed. Tisha B'Av has been a very sad day for a very long time, but it was never supposed to be. It's the day that was supposed to be a holiday, the day that the spies were supposed to come back from going around the land and reporting and saying, those guys who live in the promised land, they are huge. If we have to fight them on our own, we have no chance. But fortunately, when you get to choose sides, we get the first pick. And we're picking God. And with God on our side, it's going to be a cakewalk. 
but 10 of the 12 perverted the essence of the day when they said, no, we'll never be able to win. They turned it from a holiday into a sad day. And so we've got to take out our flashlights this year especially and shine them and keep telling ourselves and our family, our relatives, our friends, and the whole world that there is light at the end of the tunnel. And Tisha B'Av, hopefully this year, or if not sometime real soon, is going to turn back into the holiday that it was always meant to be. Pretty amazing words, I must say. Pretty amazing words from Harry Rothenberg on this, uh, what is essentially Erev Tisha B'Av, it's certainly Erev Shabbos Chazon. It is Erev Shabbos Chazon here at JM in the AM. Yeah. Shining the light. Making sure to somehow repair that terrible, terrible sin of the spies. Trying to always, always remember that even in the slightest way, to always be complimenting and praising the land of Israel and the great gift that God has given us. And remember, it's the state of Israel that gives us access now to the land of Israel. Let's always remember that when people complain to you about the goings-on with the state of Israel. JM in the AM, uh, speaking of Israel, we're there next week. Uh, we'll be broadcasting with Yom NCSY on a Monday night, which means you'll hear the show on a Tuesday morning between 6 and 9 a.m. Looking forward to an amazing week in Israel with great guests. We have some amazing shows uh, scheduled. And then Friday, a week from today, uh, I hope to be back here in our studio in New York City, and um, we'll present our next weekly update. Malcolm Holine originally thought we'd be able to do a weekly update this morning. His travel schedule will not allow for it. So our next weekly update will be uh, one week from today, 7.40 a.m. Eastern Time. Here at JM in the AM. Malcolm Honline, one week from today. Told you about the uh, Tisha B'Av service at the Isaiah Peace Wall. It'll be virtual this year. If you want the Zoom link for Sunday afternoon, just email Shuli, S-H-U-L-I, at thebuyit.org. Shuli, S-H-U-L-I, at thebuyit.org. Team Israel. <laughs> they will be waiting on Sunday until 9.13 p.m., to play at um, at the Bethesda Big Train. They'll wait until after Tanis Esther. Tanis Esther. Until after Tisha B'Av. Why do I thought of Tanis Esther just now? It's funny. They'll be. I think because Harry said that, uh, right, that uh, Mashiach, you'd think, would be born on Purim or a happy day. Anyway, uh, so they're going to wait to play the Bethesda Big Train Sunday night until 9.13, until the fast is over, which is so cool. And then they'll play the Ripken League All-Stars in Aberdeen, Maryland on uh, Monday night, right? Monday night, this Monday night at 6 p.m. So those of you down in Maryland, in fact, in fact, the listener Ellie sent me the name of the synagogue that's doing uh, tickets for the game. Um, they're going to be seated in Section 206. There'll be a table outside the stadium for ticket pickup. This is from the Pikesville Jewish Congregation. Big thank you to Yoni Rosenblatt. Um, PJC fans, Pikesville Jewish Congregation fans, can arrive as early as 4.30 and have a ball signed by members of the team. Ball sponsored by True Sports. Very cool. 
Uh, so there you go, PikesvilleJewish.com. Uh, PikesvilleJewish.com for Monday's game is uh, Team Israel against uh, the Ripken League All-Stars in Aberdeen, Maryland. And uh, we will be in Israel, otherwise, <laughs> believe me, otherwise we thought of going down to that game. Um, and that'll be happening uh, next week on Monday. Uh, trying to think what else I have to remind everybody about. In ter- oh, there was a... Um, I noticed overnight that there's a, a Tishabov program going on in the Brooklyn, New York. This is the one that um, that generally happens on Tishabov. It's happening tomorrow night with Marev Eicha and Kinnis at 9.55, and then Rabbi Simcha Scholar is going to speak at 10.40. This is all happening at the Yeshiva Rabbi Chaim Berlin Elementary School on East 13th Street in Brooklyn, New York. You get, there's a dial-in number for this. Uh, there's a donations and live stream at TorahPrograms.com. Sunday, Shacharis is at 8. Kinnis with the Rabbi Ephraim Levine at 9. Rabbi Shmuel Yaakov Klein speaks at 1. Mincha at 2. Rabbi Herschel Zolti, Rabbi Yosef Wiener, Rabbi Moshe Tovia Leaf. Um, an archive presentation of Rabbi Israel Tauber of Blessed Memory. Uh, Rabbi Gershon Ribner, Rabbi Moshe Meiselman, Rabbi Shmuel Dishon, Rabbi Fischel Schachter. And then the Davin Marav Havdala refreshments, etc., plus Kiddush Lavana starting at 9 p.m. So that's at Yeshiva Rabbi Chaim Berlin Elementary School, 911 East 13th Street in Brooklyn. So you can check that out, one of the Tishabov programs that are going on. ZK told me about a couple of other Tishabov programs that are happening. So a, a big Yeshikach to those who are inspiring people. Uh, Tishabov tomorrow night and Tishabov on Sunday with great video presentations and, of course, with wonderful lectures and speeches. An explanation of Kinos. Believe me, it is greatly appreciated by many, to say the least. Our next weekly update will be next week, one week from today. Malcolm Holmline not able to join us today. He'll join us, please God, next week. Feel free to comment on our app. Go to the NSN, Nahum Single Network app for Android and iPhone, and comment. Remember, if you want to get us a message for Yom NCSY, try to do it before noon Eastern time. On Monday, because Monday night in Israel, we'll be recording Tuesday morning's Yom NCSY show. So try your hardest to get us that message as soon as possible. It's Nachum at NachumSiegel.com, subject line Yom NCSY. Nachum at NachumSiegel.com, again, subject line Yom NCSY. So keep that in mind for Monday. And um, and we'll be in Israel, please God, Tuesday morning, Wednesday morning, and Thursday morning show, and then back in studio here at JMNAM. I want to thank Matis, who will be on Sunday on Tishabov. Amazing that he's doing a live show on Tishabov. He always does. And he's incredible, as you know. We talk about that all the time. The commitment he has to JM Sunday that starts at 7 a.m. Eastern time here at the Nahum Siegel Network. And um, and uh, Monday, Monday morning, a uh, which will be the 10th of Av, it'll be an encore presentation of... Um, It'll be an encore presentation of our 10th of Av program, Stories of Rav Shlomo Kalbach. That's our general tradition on the 10th of Av, Stories of Rav Shlomo Kalbach. We'll present that, an encore presentation coming up this coming Monday, starting at 6 a.m. Eastern Time. Make sure to be tuned in. And... Um, That'll, yeah, that'll happen Monday and um, and then Tuesday from Israel. Simple as that. Right, Beryl Wine, the United States and its Jews. The topic, orthodoxy at JM in the AM.
I think the uh, pivotal decades uh, regarding American Jewry occurred in the 1940s and 1950s. America in the 1930s was very isolationist. Uh, Roosevelt ran for a third term on the promise that he would keep America out of war. And in fact, uh, there's great doubt uh, that America would have entered the war under any circumstances if it were not for the fact that the Japanese attacked them at Pearl Harbor and that Hitler, for some strange reason, uh, when America only declared war on Japan, uh, Hitler declared war on the United States unilaterally three days later. Now, part of the uh, isolationist uh, feeling in the country was that they didn't want to get involved in what they called the Jewish war. Hitler's anti-Semitism, the uh, program that he announced that he would destroy European Jewry, as loathsome as it was for the United States to enter, uh, the majority of the American people did not want to fight a war on behalf of saving European Jews. And they did not want to fight a war to save England or France uh, because they were very uh, disappointed at what happened after the First World War when they felt that they had saved the Allies and that everything just went back to business as usual. The, the empires restored themselves, etc. So America was very much out of it. And Jewish America then was hardly influential in any way whatsoever. It was influential, as I mentioned in the last lecture, which I'm certain you remember every word of, that uh, it was influential in entertainment, in the radio, in the movies, and uh, somewhat in the financial world, but not in the political world at all. There was only uh, uh, one Jewish representative in the House of Representatives, Sal Bloom from New York, who was pretty much Jewish in name only. Uh, Roosevelt, however, in his cabinet had uh, his uh, friend from uh, upstate from Hyde Park, New York, Henry Morgenthau Jr. as his Secretary of the Treasury. Morgenthau was a uh, reformed Jew. Uh, he was a very assimilated Jew. Uh, he did not seem to be overly interested in Jewish matters either. And therefore, uh, the Jewish community 
uh, when the war broke out. So the war began in September 1939. By uh, the beginning of 1941, America is still not in the war. In September 1941, two years after the war started, America is still not in the war. But reports began to drift back as to what was happening in Poland, in the Baltic states, that the Germans were uh, destroying the Jewish community, and on the other hand, that the communists were destroying the Jewish community. And the Jews were caught in the vice between Hitler and Stalin, the two great murderers of the 20th century. And the Jews were, as I mentioned, uh, in the United States, uh, to a great extent, powerless. However, there were, uh, the New York Times was Jewish, other media's outlets were Jewish, but uh, they did not dwell upon the Jewish problem because of the fact that that was very good, dangerous for the Jews in the United States itself. There was a great deal of anti-Semitism in the United States, and Jews had a low profile. Then the war breaks out, the Japan attacks in 1941, and it becomes a patriotic war. Tens of thousands of Jews enlist or are drafted into the United States Army. And uh, the uh, strategy was agreed upon that the first business, border of business would be the defeat of Germany before the defeat of Japan. By the end of 1942, when uh, Hitler had already invaded Russia and conquered most of European Russia, he controlled uh, millions and millions of Jews. And in 1941, they had set up already the apparatus for the final solution, and they were going to exterminate all of European Jewry. The United States State Department was aware of that. Now, Jewish leaders in the United States also became aware of that. And they were faced with a terrible dilemma. Now, who were the Jewish leaders in the United States then? Well, Stephen Wise was an advisor to Roosevelt. He was a reform rabbi. Uh, other... Uh, Jews uh, were, uh, the establishment was reformed. The establishment was assimilationist. Those who represented the Jewish people. The Orthodox, even though they may have had, to a certain extent, numbers on their side then, had almost no influence. It was Yiddish-speaking rabbis, uh, they were looked at as dinosaurs. So, uh, in 1943, for instance, 
the uh, Union of Orthodox Rabbis of the United States and Canada, under the direction of Rabbi Eliezer Silver, who was the Rove in Cincinnati, Ohio. Uh, they were already privy to what was going on in Europe. They knew it. And they tried to influence the United States government to do something about it. Now, what the United States government could or could not have been done is a matter of debate until today. But the policy was that we're not going to bother with the Holocaust because that diverts attention and resources away from defeating Germany. The best way to deal with the Jewish uh, problem in Europe is to defeat Germany, and the sooner the better, and we can't spare anything, therefore, on behalf of the refugees or on behalf of the Jews in Europe. That was the official line, it was the line of the State Department. Cordell Hull, who was the Secretary of State, was an anti-Semite. Breckenridge, who was in, title, in charge of the visa program, was an anti-Semite. America turned away uh, Jewish refugees that uh, attempted to come to America. They sent away the uh, St. Louis, uh, that boat, had almost a thousand refugees, all of whom eventually perished. Uh, America was not forthcoming. And uh, the month of Elul in 1943, the Agudu Sarabonim organized a demonstration of 300 rabbis, over 300 rabbis, who went to Washington and on the steps of uh, the Capitol uh, protested what was happening to the Jewish community in Eastern Europe and who demanded that the United States do something. Uh, Roosevelt refused to meet with them. The one who did meet with them was Henry Morgenthau. And fascinatingly enough, uh, they made a great impression upon Morgenthau, the reformed Jew. All of these white-bearded, Yiddish-speaking rabbis. And Morgenthau became interested in the Jewish cause. Uh, there was a rov in uh, New York, Rabbi Kalmanowitz, Kalmanovic, uh, who uh, represented the mirror yeshiva that was stuck in Shanghai that had escaped through Japan, and Rabbi Kalmanovitz somehow got into Morgenthau's office, and Rabbi Kalmanovitz, who was a great fundraiser, had the knack to faint upon will, which had an effect upon donors who were recalcitrant. <laughs> And he uh, got a hold of Morgenthau and he fainted for him. <laughs> and Morgenthau was shaken. 
and Morgenthau worked through uh, Roosevelt, and a refugee camp was established in upstate New York, where eventually uh, 30,000 Jews were saved uh, because the Germans were corrupt, uh, as Eichmann proved later, and uh, there were uh, organizations, especially in Switzerland, Jewish organizations that simply bribed and corrupted and therefore uh, what amounts to a minuscule amount, but some Jews were able to be ransomed and escaped. In the overall picture, uh, the Americans did not bomb uh, the trains to Auschwitz, did not bomb the Auschwitz itself, even though they had aerial photo photographs of it. Uh, they were well aware, but again, the claim was that you could not be diverted from the main thrust of the war, which was to defeat uh, Germany, and then to go on and defeat Japan. Part of the suspicion that still existed in America was that the Jews were basically communists. And uh, this was encouraged in the Second World War by the fact that Russia was an ally of the United States. And because of that, uh, pro-Russian, pro-communist propaganda uh, filtered through everywhere in the United States. I remember when I was in public school then, uh, we had one Jewish teacher who uh, taught us uh, Russian communist songs <laughs> as part of our patriotic effort to defeat Germany. And the Jewish community was under great suspicion. Later, the suspicion became intense because when it was revealed that the uh, spies, the atomic spies, were Jewish on behalf of the Soviet Union, Julius and Ethel Rosenberg, the Jewish community did nothing to defend them because of that fear. And I don't know whether it could have been or should have been defended. And then uh, in the atomic program, Oppenheimer, Greenglass, etc., the Jewish scientists all lost their security clearances and were accused of being agents for the Soviet Union. When after the war, three things happened uh, that affected the Jewish community greatly. First of all, the horror of the Holocaust was revealed. Eisenhower called in all the army photographers to photograph and take movies of Bergen-Belsen. The horror was visible. It was undeniable. The second thing that happened was the struggle to create the State of Israel. 
Now, American Jewry rallied behind it. Uh, it it's almost uh, unbelievable the amount of unity that was in the American Jewish community on behalf of the state of Israel. The Jewish mafia made a parlor meeting for a golden mayor. He went to a parlor meeting for the mafia, you know. He didn't say, uh, you know, I'll, I'll send you a check later. <laughs> and she walked out with a whole bunch of cash that she was able to buy arms. Not only buy arms, the mafia controlled the Longshoremen's Union in New York, and therefore they smuggled all the arms on ships that got to Palestine. And basically, that's how the Haganah and the Irgun had their weapons. So American Jewry was united on that. There were no calls then uh, against the, uh, the state not amongst the religious and not amongst the secular, not amongst anyone. And at that time, the Soviet Union also supported it. One of the anomalies of the situation is that the Soviet Union also supported it. So the Jewish communists were in it too. So you had a united Jewish community and uh, Roosevelt had conveniently died because had he lived, it probably never would have happened. And Truman succeeded him. And Truman had certain advisors who were not Jewish, but who were very pro-Israel, Clark Clifford and others, who felt that it was not only in the best interests of the Jewish people, but in the best interests of the United States to support it. And the state of Israel came into being, and uh, mainly because it was backed originally by the United States, even though the United States did not offer any material aid or officially send any arms. So that was the second thing that affected the Jews. The third thing that affected the Jews was a complete change in the demographics and the economic status of the Jewish people in the United States. During the war, a lot of people made a lot of money. Some legally, some in the gray area, some illegally, but a lot of people made money because there was rationing, so then how could you get around rationing? And there were a lot of things. And when the war ended, a lot of people had money, but it had nothing to do with the money because there had been no consumer goods uh, that uh, had been produced during the war. It was all uh, military goods. So now that the consumerism returned to the United States, uh, the Jewish community exploded. First thing they did is move out of the old Jewish neighborhoods. There was a migration of African Americans from the South that had come north to get jobs, 
to work in the industrial plants and the entire Jewish neighborhoods within a, uh, a year or two uh, there had almost no Jews living there anymore. I remember Chicago, when the war ended, there were 42 Orthodox synagogues in the Lawndale area, and there were about uh, 80,000 Jews that lived there. Within five years, there only were about 10,000 Jews left, and there only were six synagogues left. And this was a great demographic change, because now the push to suburbia began. You didn't want to live in an apartment anymore. You wanted to have your own home. You wanted to have a garden, backyard. And uh, this developed. Now, in order for uh, Torah Jews, observant Jews, uh, to have an infrastructure, they have to live, uh, relatively speaking, close to the Jewish institutions. You have to live close to the synagogue to go on Sabbath. You need uh, butcher shops, you need kosher, you need... Uh, the suburbs were basically against all of that because they were so spread out. It was almost impossible that uh, large numbers of Jews could walk to the synagogue. And therefore, because of this uh, social problem, uh, the uh, major break between the conservative movement in the United States and the Orthodox took place. Until uh, probably 1948-49, the conservative movement was basically Orthodox light. Uh, they had deviations in the fact that men and women were not separated in the synagogue. But the synagogue service was orthodox. And most of the rabbis were observant orthodox. The Jewish theological seminary. JM in the AM. We're in the middle of Rabbi Beryl Wine's lecture on orthodoxy as it relates to the United States of America. We'll pick it up and continue in just a moment here at JMM. I do want to remind everybody that uh, originally we thought Malcolm Honeline would be joining us for the weekly update today. His travel schedule in the end did not allow it, but hopefully, hopefully, one week from today at 7.40 a.m. Eastern Time on the 23rd of July, hopefully Malcolm will be with us right here at JM in the AM. I do want to remind everybody that Tisha B'Av is uh, tomorrow night and Sunday, the Isaiah Peace Wall. Uh, Mincha service and presentations will be done virtually this year. If you'd like the Zoom link, it is uh, available to you by uh, emailing Shuli, S-H-U-L-I, at thebayit.org. Shuli, S-H-U-L-I, at thebayit.org. Starts at one forty-five this coming Sunday, Eastern Time. Uh, Monday, we present our encore presentation of stories of Reb Shlomo Kalbach. It's a Tenth of Av tradition here at JM in the AM. And then... Tuesday, Wednesday, and Thursday from Israel, including our Tuesday morning, Monday night, Yom NCSY show, uh, which we'd love to include your messages uh, as part of our show. Uh, all you got to do is uh, send your message to nachum at nachumsegal.com. That's nachum, N-A-C-H-U-M, at nachumsegal, N-A-C-H-U-M-S-E-G-A-L.com. And um, 
put in the subject line, Yom NCSY, Yom NCSY. Be more than happy to get that on for you uh, during our broadcast. Just make sure you get it to us before, I guess, noontime Monday here in New York, and then we'll uh, we'll be able to include it. An amazing list of guests and a lot of great shows coming up from Israel. Friday, we plan on being back in our studio with a weekly update and more next week. Erev Shabbos Nachamu, so a big, exciting week coming up as we bridge that gap between Israel and the diaspora as only we can. Uh, coming up next week right here at JM and the AM. I want to thank our friends at JewishWorldReview.com, those of you who want to print out thousands of articles on Jewish topics, including Tisha B'Av, I bet. I bet you they have topic of uh, Tisha B'Av there on JewishWorldReview.com. Uh, any Jewish topic, news, opinion, um, historic, so many things you'll find at JewishWorldReview.com. Print them out before Shabbos and then spend your Shabbos and Tisha B'Av with appropriate reading. Uh, you'll be glad you did, and a big thank you to our friends at JewishWorldReview.com who continue to enthusiastically recommend us, the Nahum Siegel Network, to their readers. Uh, more coming up. It's our barrel wine on the subject of orthodoxy in the United States. The uh, information line for Rabbi Wine's lectures, 1-800-499-WEIN. Or you can go to the web at RabbiWine.com, RabbiWEIN.com. Orthodox faculty, and it itself was strictly orthodox. The seminary always had separate seating. And the line was very blurred. But the break occurred in 1948. Because of the fact that the conservatives were the vanguard that built synagogues in suburbia. So they were faced with the problem immediately of how are we going to have people come on the Sabbath and are going to walk three, four miles. And therefore, the rabbinic commission of the seminary uh, commissioned a uh, halachic review And they wrote a very scholarly rabbinic responsa using halachic terms claiming that on the basis of the halacha they were able to do so. And they said it's all right to drive a car to the synagogue on Sabbath if you're going for the services. And that was a major break because uh, people uh, people were not uh, taken in by this. If you could drive the car to the synagogue, you could drive it to the golf course too. And therefore, uh, the Sabbath was broken. It was broken badly. So you had this major split in the American Jewish community along observant lines, really along the lines of the Sabbath. And when I grew up as a child, I had a lot of friends that weren't Sabbath observers, but they were Jewish. 
But the Sabbath was the Sabbath. There was only one definition of it. Later on, however, the definition became whether you were a Sabbath observer or not. I think the air conditioning is off, right? So either open the windows or ask them to turn on the air conditioning. Should open the windows. (laughs) Now, in addition to this, starting in 1946 and continuing uh, till about 1960, there was a wave of Eastern European Jews that came to the United States, the survivors. With them came the surviving Hasidic leaders, the surviving Rashi Yeshiva, those who escaped, those who were from Shanghai, they came to America. Unlike their predecessors, they were not willing to admit that America was different. They were not willing to say, we're going to compromise because it's America. And they took a very hard line on matters of observance, on matters of cautious, and on policy matters. So, for instance, there was an organization in the United States called the Synagogue Council of America. The Synagogue Council of America, uh, which really never accomplished anything, which is not unlike other organizations, uh, was composed of reform, conservative, and orthodox synagogues, and of reform, conservative, and orthodox rabbinic organizations. And it had existed since the 1920s. Uh, it had uh, it lobbied on behalf of Jewish causes, but it really wasn't uh, a very effective or strong organization. It, however, became the focal point of a dispute in the Orthodox community, a dispute which still has ramifications until today, and it's mirrored here in Israeli society as well. The uh, European rabbis, who now had positions in the American yeshivot, and who were Hasidic leaders, and were very, very influential and strong and great people. They demanded that the Orthodox withdraw from the Synagogue Council of America. In fact, they gave up on the conservative and reform movement in America. The underlying reason was that they said these people are never going to change. We're never going to be able to convince them. They're going to drift off. That's it. We have to build ourselves. We have to go our own way. We have to forget about them. Now, there were sections in the Orthodox community that disagreed with that, that felt that it was an unnecessary fracture. 
but it nevertheless occurred. And it had great influence because it developed within orthodoxy itself two streams in America. One stream would control, represent the yeshiva world and the Hasidic world, and the other one eventually claimed to be the representatives of modern orthodoxy. But no one expected that somehow the hardliners, those that represented the yeshiva world, etc., would be successful. And they started out very small. I remember that in 1953, uh, my father and I took a trip to the East Coast, and my father, who knew Rabbi Aaron Cutler from Europe, went to see him, and then he uh, had started his institution in Lakewood. There was a lady there that uh, gave him an old uh, rooming house to house the yeshiva. And uh, it had a student body then of 27, of whom a, a third or perhaps a half were European born, not even Americans. And my father asked uh, Rabbi Cutler, how many uh, students does he expect that his yeshiva will grow into? And the answer was uh, 50, maybe 100. At the last count, I think there were uh, 9,341. So that's a remarkable change in American Jewry. And uh, was matched by uh, the development of Hasidic neighborhoods, in, in, especially in New York. Borough Park, which originally was uh, pretty much a modern Orthodox neighborhood. It became a bastion of the Hasidic and uh, Williamsburg, the Sotmer built it. And uh, there was a new, uh, a new uh, energy in the Orthodox community, even though most of American Jewry, the overwhelming amount, were conservative and reform. And the conservative were positive that they were the wave of the future. <laughs> There was an article in uh, Look Magazine in uh, 1950 about American Jewry. And it predicted that the wave of the future would be that American Jewry would be conservative, the Orthodox would disappear, and it would be conservative and reform, and that would be it. J.M. in the A.M. It is America's one and only Jewish moments in the morning radio program. Heard on listeners, sponsored digital radio. Around the world, the web at NachumSingle.com and the NachumSingle Network, and of course, in the beloved NSN app.
Rabbi Yudin is scheduled to join us from Israel to discuss uh, Parshas Dvarim and the Shabbos Chazon and, of course, Tisha B'Av. So we'll have that for you coming up. Uh, Malcolm Holine originally was scheduled to join us for a weekly update this morning, and his travel schedule in the end did not allow him to be able to join us, uh, unfortunately. So uh, hopefully our next weekly update will be at 7.40 a.m. Eastern Time. Uh, one week from today, on the 23rd of July, Erev Shabbos Nachamu will be in Israel and be broadcasting there Tuesday, Wednesday, and Thursday. And our intention is to be back here in studio starting Friday morning, Erev Shabbos Nachamu. So that's the uh, that's the story. That's what's going on. That's our schedule. And I hope everybody out there uh, will be uh, tuned in to us all through the week. If you want to get us a special message for Monday night show, which we're going to broadcast on Tuesday morning, uh, for a Yom NCSY, you got to do it before Monday morning. So just send a special message if you know of an NCSY or somebody out there who's at Yom NCSY. You want to include that in our broadcast for Tuesday morning. Send it as soon as possible to nachum at nachumsegal.com, N-A-C-H-U-M at N-A-C-H-U-M-S-E-G-A-L.com. Um, you want to use subject line Yom NCSY. Again, subject line Yom NCSY. And that's about it. That's about the whole story. And uh, you'll be able to um, you'll be able to um, go ahead and uh, have that message included in our Tuesday morning show. Don't forget, Tisha B'av is Sunday. The Isaiah Peace Wall is usually the place of mincha and very important presentations about Jews in danger around the world. Uh, this year it'll be done virtually. If you'd like the virtual Zoom address. For Mincha and the presentations that normally happen at the Isaiah Peace Wall um, for this year, it's Shuli, S-H-U-L-I, Shuli at thebayit.org. Shuli, S-H-U-L-I at thebayit.org. Keep that in mind, and um, that that's really the whole thing. Shuli, S-H-U-L-I at thebayit.org. Make sure to include um, a request for the Zoom link for the Isaiah Peace Wall Tefillah and presentations this coming Sunday, 1.45 p.m. Eastern Time um, on your computer, normally at the Isaiah Peace Wall, but in this case on your computer. We'll continue with Harry Barrel Wine on America and Orthodoxy, and uh, when Rabbi Yudin checks in with us, we'll get him on the air regarding Parshas Dvarim, Shabbos Chazon, Tisha B'Av, etc., all coming up on a Friday morning Erev Shabbos here at JM in the AM. Oost. And my father, who knew Rabbi Aaron Cutler from Europe, uh, went to see him. And then he uh, had started his institution in Lakewood. There was a lady there that uh, gave him an old uh, rooming house to house the yeshiva. And... uh, it had a student body then of 27, of whom a, a third or perhaps a half were European-born, not even Americans. And my father asked uh, Rabbi Cutler, how many uh, students does he expect that his yeshiva will grow into? And the answer was... Uh, 50, maybe 100. 
the last count, I think there were uh, 9,341. <laughs> uh, so that's a remarkable change in American Jewry. And uh, was matched by uh, the development of Hasidic neighborhoods, in, in, especially in New York. Borough Park, which originally was uh, pretty much a modern Orthodox neighborhood. It became a bastion of the Hasidic, and uh, Williamsburg, the Sotmer built it. And uh, there was a new, uh, a new uh, energy in the Orthodox community, even though most of American Jewry, overwhelming amount, were conservative and reform. And the conservative were positive that they were the wave of the future. There was an article in uh, Look Magazine in uh, 1950 about American Jewry. And it predicted that the wave of the future would be that American Jewry would be conservative, the Orthodox would disappear, and it would be conservative and reform, and that would be it. And that was the expert opinion. All the Jewish federations, all the Jewish uh, official organizations were based on that premise. And therefore, their executive heads and their boards of directors were all conservative and reform. I remember uh, when, uh, in uh, 1958 or 59, I appeared before the Federation in Chicago to appeal for funds for the Jewish, Orthodox Jewish Day School there. Uh, to say that I got a hostile reception would be an understatement. The Federation today gives uh, hundreds of thousands, if not millions of dollars in Chicago to uh, Orthodox educational institutions because that became the ball game. There is nothing else to do. And uh, great changes were occurring. Uh, Dr. Belkin, Zichrona Levrocha, who was the head of the Yeshiva University, a man of great vision, a great, great Talmudic scholar. So he established the Albert Einstein Medical School, which uh, allowed Orthodox students to obtain a medical degree without violating the Sabbath. And because Einstein was successful, it was copied by other medical schools that were not Jewish, but who now instituted a Sabbath observant program in order to attract these students. And the Jewish community began to come into its own. There was a, uh, anti-Semitism was no longer 
what shall I say, acceptable. It existed, but it was not something you advertised anymore. There was a famous movie called Gentleman's Agreement, which highlighted anti-Semitism. And people talked about it. And it became uh, less and less acceptable. Uh, the horrors of the Holocaust naturally had a great influence. And Jewish political influence grew as well. So uh, for 1960, for instance, John F. Kennedy was elected because of uh, Jacob Arvey, who was a member of my father's shul in Chicago. And he was the Democratic National Committeeman for Illinois. And uh, when uh, the vote in Illinois, Kennedy needed uh, a few more thousand votes, Arvey somehow supplied him with 8,000 votes. And uh, Nixon was defeated. So there was now Jewish influence. Not only that, uh, the labor unions became strong. The Jews were very strong in the labor union. Even in Roosevelt's time, uh, so Roosevelt used to say, you have to clear it with a Jewish labor leader as to whether or not it'll go. So Jews became much more influential than their numbers would warrant. And the fact that Jews also began to climb the financial scale, and therefore they were people with money, and some Jews had a lot of money. The money buys you influence in politics. Now, all of this uh, was reinforced by the Six-Day War. And Jews in the United States uh, bought Israel bonds. So they bought Israel bonds originally as a donation. They didn't figure that Israel's ever going to redeem the bond. But Israel did so. And uh, Jewish influence, uh, labor unions bought Israel bonds for their pension funds, all sorts of investors. It became not a matter of charity, but a matter of commerce. And the support to Israel grew. Now, in 1967, when Nasser and the Arabs said they were going to throw the Jews into the sea, so American Jewry was shocked. I lived through it, I can testify to it. People walked in the streets dumbfounded. You know what to do. I remember I was a rub there in Miami Beach then. People came and sat in shul all day. Not they didn't dive them, they, they weren't really, they just sat. Because here it was going to happen again, God forbid. And when the Six-Day War was over, with its astounding result, uh, then American Jewry was absolutely euphoric. And that again went across the board. 
So, for instance, uh, there were still reformed temples in 1960s that would not make an, an appeal for Israel bonds because basically reform was against, it was dual, dual nationalism, etc. However, the demographics of reform changed. Most reform now had orthodox grandparents. They didn't have reform grandparents because there are very few reform grandparents that have reform grandchildren. And therefore, it all changed and became pro-Israel and it became more Jewish. The first time Jews began to wear a kippah on the street in the, in the United States or on an airplane. And I, I remember when I, in the early 1970s when I headed the, the OU Kashras, companies came to us and they wanted to have kosher certification. I never understood, but they felt that somehow, you know, this was a magic thing. There was a man by the name of Ralph Wilson. He owned the Buffalo Bills in the National Football League. And he built uh, uh, the stadium there. He made the uh, power of the milk. Rich, rich, uh, rich's whip, whatever. Yeah, that was him. He made a, a forge. So he had the biggest OU imaginable on the package. And I once asked him, you know, <laughs> he said, what are you talking about? He said, that's why I'm successful. That's why Rich's whip is successful. Look at that big OU. And you had big companies like Procter and Gamble and Colgate and General Foods uh, that all subscribe to have kosher now. When I grew up, there was no kosher margarine and there was no kosher shortening. By word of mouth, people told us that spry you could use because it was vegetable. My mother didn't believe it, and so she, she we had uh, chicken fat shortening. It was cholesterol heaven. It couldn't be more delicious. And then uh, Procter and Gamble made Crisco and put an OU on it and made it kosher. And their sales zoomed, not because Jews bought Crisco, but somehow other people bought Crisco too. But you had this uh, great upsurge in being Jewish. And then you had uh, uh, a, uh, the products of the day school movement began to appear. And at least in the Orthodox community, uh, almost all the parents withdrew their children from the public school system. Our nine days lectures brought by Beryl Wine have been inspiring, to say the least, and we're going to try very hard 
to conclude this lecture on the USA and orthodoxy before we wrap up our nine days format coming up here at JM in the AM. It's Friday morning on this 16th of July. I want to give a special happy birthday to those who celebrate their birthday on the 16th of July. There might be someone very special in this audience who does that. It is the 7th of Menachem Av, the year 5781, Tavshin Pei Aleph. Uh, we will observe Tisha B'Av uh, tomorrow night and Sunday. Hopefully it'll be for the last time, please God. Uh, it's Erev Shabbos Parshas uh, Dvarim, Erev Shabbos Chazon, Tisha B'Av tomorrow night. Monday, uh, our 10th of Av, encore presentation of a very, very... Um, a deep-rooted custom, which we have here, which is on the 10th of Av, our JM&AM presentation is Stories of Reb Shlomo Kalbach, so we'll do that Monday. Tuesday from Yom NCSY, that'll be recorded Monday night at Rishon LeZion. Uh, next week from Israel, and Friday morning, Erev Shabbos Nachamu, we are expecting to be back right here in our studio at JM&AM in New York City. So that is the schedule for the upcoming week, very exciting. And uh, hopefully it'll help bridge the gap between Israel and the diaspora, which has been a big, big challenge over the last year and a half plus. Um, if you want to get a special message to be included in our Yom NCSY program, send it by email, nachum at nachumsegel.com, subject line, Yom NCSY, nachum at nachumsegel.com, subject line, Yom NCSY. This time each and every Friday, every Erev Shabbos, with great pleasure we present Rabbi Benjamin Uden, spiritual leader emeritus, Congregation Shomri Torah in Fairlawn, New Jersey, to address the entire listening audience concerning the Torah portion of the week. Today, again, we have the privilege of hearing from Rabbi Uden live from the state of Israel. Good morning, Rabbi Uden. Well, good morning to you, Nachum, and good morning to everybody listening. And uh, for us here, we're privileged to be here. It is good afternoon. Um, let me, I always begin with something which is uh, prevalent to what's going on in Eretz Yisrael, and by nature, I am positive, really positive. However, I have to begin by saying, unfortunately, we are, and I hope I'm wrong, Moshiach can still come, but if we do sit down to another Tisha B'Av this year, another Tisha B'Av of mourning, because remember, and check me out, bring him tonight to your Shabbos table, the Navi Zachariah. If you haven't set a place for him yet, not too late. Bring Zachariah, and I'll make it very easy for you. Turn to chapter 8, and I'll make it very easy for you. Go to Pasuk 19, and what does the Navi promise? Strong word, because every Shabbos after the Torah, we say, V'davar echot midvarecha, not a single word of the prophets, Ochor lo yoshuv reikam, will be, quote, not coming true. So every word of the prophets are true. And what does the Navi say? He says, Tzom Horevi'i, the fast of the fourth month, which we had last month, Shavasa Batamus. Tzom Hamishi, the fast of the fifth month, which is this coming Motsoi Shabbos and Sunday, Tisha B'Av, the fast of the seventh month, which is Tzom Gedalia, and the fast of the tenth month, which is Asar Beteves. Yehiyu, they're going to be L'Sason and L'Simcha. They're going to be holidays, but there's one What's the word? 
caveat, there's one condition at the end of the verse. Emes and shalom aevu. There has to be emes, truth. There has to be shalom. There has to be literally embracing one another as opposed to, I don't want to say it, that word which is the opposite of embracing. And unfortunately, while it's great here, we have to work on some of that. And the more of you that come on Aliyah, the more there's going to be Avas Yisrael in Eretz Yisrael. Come home. Okay, let's get to work. The Shabbos, we have the privilege of reading Parshas Devarim. We begin the fifth book of the Torah, called Mishneh Torah. In Devarim, according to the Chinuch, there are two mitzvos. They are both mitzvos lo saseh, and they don't apply to the individual. They apply to the community. The community is to appoint dayonim, judges that are worthy, knowledgeable for the position, and once these dayonim have been appointed, they are musoguru bifneish, they're not to have, uh, they're not to be afraid of the people, and they are to judge properly. I will focus first on Tisha B'Av, which begins this Saturday night, as we said. Now, let's go. In other years in the past, you do remember that you've had a Su'uda Hamafsekes. You had a meal before the fast. That we do not have this year. Just the opposite. You can eat at your Shalosh Su'udos. This year, your Shalashudas, meat and wine. The only thing is, you have to stop by Shkia, by sunset. I don't have my calendar in front of me when sunset is back in the States. Take a look, and you're smart enough to know that you don't have to stop a minute before. You'll stop five, seven minutes beforehand, etc. And if you are going to be eating certain foods and drinking perhaps a little bit more, etc., because Sunday is a fast day, you don't have to say it. I'm eating because. In other words, that borders on possibly hachana, preparing one day for the next. Just do what you've got to do. Okay, so let's understand that we do not take off our shoes until it is definitively night. Many of the uh, synagogues here in Eretz Yisrael, and I'm sure many in the States as well, might have the following. When Shabbos is over, you um, say, Baruch HaMavdil bin Kodesh Lechol. At that point, you put on your, uh, take off your Shabbos shoes, put on your appropriate non-leather shoes for Tish Ba'av, and go to Shul to Davin Meiriv. And many people can then, by all means, drive to Davin Meiriv. Okay? Now, we do not make Havdalah at home this Motsoe Shabbos. We will make Havdalah, we'll talk about it, on um, Sunday night instead. Now, Saturday night, in Shul, after Mayriv, we will recite the bracha of Borei Meorei Ha'esh. And therefore, if you 
hear the bracha in shul, you're yotze with that bracha. If a gentleman knows that his wife is not going to be in shul and will not hear the bracha, then he should not be yotze with the bracha in shul, but rather should make the bracha at home, for him and his wife. All right? Now, you have, as we know, the reading of Eicha and the appropriate kinos for Shabbos, the uh, kinos of, unfortunately, the transformation into the night of Tisha B'Av. There is no B'Samim this year, period. Now, if somebody is sick and has to eat, if they really have to eat even Saturday night, so before you eat this Tisha B'Av, you have to make Havdalah, which we'll pause for a second and remind ourselves, in reality, we make two Havdalah every every Motsoi Shabbos. The first one, Atochon Antonu, or in this case, before even that, we're going to say Atochon Antonu Mayriv, but you might be saying Baruch HaMavdol, B'Kodesh Lachol. That allows you to do Malacha. And therefore, Baruch HaMavdol, I can now drive to Shul Saturday night, uh, if that is the situation. The second Havdalah that we make at home every week enables us to eat. And therefore, if I have to eat, somebody's sick on Saturday night and they have to eat, or somebody does not feel well on Sunday and they have to eat, they should make Havdalah. They don't say, They begin with the bracha over which you have in your cup, which most say better not to have wine or grape juice. Most say Hamar Medina, which would be, let's say, iced coffee or tea, right, or beer, etc., but uh, not, uh, come on, uh, not grape juice. Some say yes, but that would be the bracha of Yoshakol Niebidvaro, and then just the bracha of Havdolah Amavdil Ben Kodesh Lachol. Okay? That is to be done for somebody who has to eat on Tisha B'Av, teaching us, reminding us why we have um, the two Havdolahs on a regular weekly basis. Okay. So now, let's go to the following. This Shabbos tomorrow, we do not say, come on, at Mincha. What are you not going to say? Why not? Because Tisha B'Av is a Moed. Now, this is something which is so hard, almost like the idea of a contradiction in terms. But listen carefully. We believe, as I showed you from that Pasuk, from the Novi Zachariah, that Tisha B'Av will be a Yom Tov. And therefore, Erev Yom Tov, we don't say, Okay. The Gemara tells us, the Mishnah in Tanis, five tragedies occurred on Yom Kippur. 
one, the our forefathers in the desert were told, you're not going into Eretz Yisrael because of the sin of the Miraglim. As it says in Tilim 106, you turned your back on the land of Israel. Keep that in mind. To undo that sin, you know what we have to do. Not just we have to turn our face towards it, but we have to embrace it. One. Number two, both the first Beis Amigdash was destroyed. Number three, the second Beis Amigdash was destroyed. Number four, Betar was unfortunately captured and thousands of Jews were killed. And finally, the wicked Turifus Rufus, the Roman, plowed Nechrisha, plowed the site of the Beis Amigdash and its surroundings. Okay, now, just as five great tragedies, so two, five prohibitions, the same as Yom Kippur. Number one, can't eat and drink. Number two, cannot bathe or wash. Number three, can't anoint oneself. Number four, marital relations. Number five, wearing leather shoes. Okay, very, very important. One, eating and drinking, this applies to everybody, including pregnant and nursing women should start. And then, if you, someone listening in good health, and you say to me, come on, I have a little headache, I'm saying don't be such a sissy, you can do it, lie down. If a woman who's pregnant or nursing, I don't feel good, that's it. She should eat, drink. Whatever she needs to do, she needs to eat, let her eat. She needs to drink, let her drink, period. Keep in mind, if a person who is not required to fast because it is doctor's orders unhealthy for them, then they're prohibited from fasting. That's a very important point. Okay, Mazel Tov, woman after childbirth, certainly first seven days, some say even the first 30 days, they don't have to fast. Me'ikaradin, children don't have to fast. However, as they get older, let them fast part of the day because let them be mishtatev. Let them feel what the community is going through. And even those that are not fasting, you're not going to have the ice cream and you're not going to have, unless you just had your tonsils out. But the idea is you got it. You're not going to uh, you know, uh, indulge in pleasuresome you know, activities. Okay. And the idea is that as we uh, go to the next not just eating and drinking, but mouthwash, to rinse one's mouth with mouthwash is also prohibited on um, Tish Abba'av. All washing is prohibited. Now we're talking about washing, which is for pleasure. And therefore in the morning you wake up, you wash as always, uh, which is what's called Negovasar, the right, left, right, left, right, left, up until the end of your fingers, the knuckles, and with uh, take the uh, water from your hands. And uh, when a little bit is left, just uh, rub them through your eyes, and this way you'll remove whatever has um, gathered during the night, and that's it. If a person got his hands soiled, taking care of a child or other ways, by all means, that washing is permissible. After using the bathroom, 
washing of your hands is permissible, once again, until the ends of their fingers. And uh, uh, washing for davening, same thing. Good. Now, the idea of next, sicha, which means anointing oneself. So I'm not going to shave on Tisha above, but I have to like aftershave. Can I put that on my face? And uh, I like the uh, fresh scent. And the answer is absolutely not. Okay. So, and the use of the deodorant, if it's really bad, then you can use deodorant spray. Okay. Tashmish Hamita, cohabitation is prohibited, and therefore one's wife has the status of Anita. She's not to be touched on Tisham B'Av. And wearing of leather shoes is prohibited. Now, we know, Pikudi Hashem Yeshorim really, the learning of Torah does give a sense of enjoyment. The Harivna, the bracha we say every day. And therefore, one is not to study Torah on Tisha B'Av. Regarding the Shabbos afternoon, the most say, especially when Erev Tisha B'Av was on a Shabbos, you can't learn regularly. If one wants to learn those things related to Tisha B'Av, go right ahead. But you can even learn regularly this Shabbos afternoon. Now, what is permissible to learn is the book of Eov with its commentaries and those parts of Yirmiyo which deal with tragedy and destruction and Megillas Eicha and the Midrashim on Eicha, the third parak of Moed Katan, the story of the destruction of the Beis Hamikdash in Gitin, Gemara Gitin, Nun Vav Amid Beis till Nun Ches Amid Aleph. Story of the destruction in Sanhedrin, Kufdalit, Amaralith, and Amibes. The story of the destruction in Josephus. The story, oh, excuse me, the Talmud Yerushalmi at the end of Tainus. Okay? And obviously the laws of Tishabav. And there's so much Holocaust reading is appropriate for Tishabav in the afternoon. I don't have to tell you, and we certainly give a very strong uh, recognition to the Chofetz Chaim Heritage Foundation for their annual uplifting and bringing to thousands of people all over the world the opportunity to say, oh, what what am I going to do on this day? I'm going to be focused. I'm going to be focused on how people respond to tragedy. I'm going to be focused on what it means to have Avas Yisrael, so really Yashakoach Godol, and any and all of these types of videos are most encouraged. If I can't learn, and I shouldn't be, quote, sitting around and schmoozing, then by all means, you should be into these videos or into these many appropriate svarim for Tisha B'Av. We don't have She'ela Shalom. You don't greet somebody on Tisha B'Av. Okay? And interesting, um, even just taking a Shpatsir, taking a walk, if the weather would be nice, 
etc.? The answer is no. That too is prohibited. And this applies all day. We sit low, starting with the evening of Tisha B'Av, from Eicha through Chatzos, uh, okay? And I strongly recommend how fortunate, unfortunately I use that word, but how fortunate we are that today there are so many in your Beisach Knesset or go online, the explanation of Kinos. It started with Rav Salavechik, the Chronal of Racha, who spent the entire morning till Chatzos. And now so, so many follow in this very special tradition that the Kinos, so many of them are difficult, the language is difficult, and therefore to be able to listen to a Rav who's going to give you the background and going to make it much more meaningful. And don't get me wrong, it's not quantity but quality. If you don't say all of the Kinos, but the ones you do say, you say it with understanding and read the English and read it slowly <clears throat> and let it have a uh, positive um, effect upon you. Working should preferably not be done, especially this year when it's on a Sunday, Tisha B'Av, and most of us have, quote, the day off from the formal working at our job, because the language of the Shulchan Aruch is that if one does work, it's Eno Roes Simon Bracha from it. And so therefore, one should, even uh, one should abstain from working on Tisha B'Av, and even housework like making beds, sweeping the floor. All this should be postponed until after chatzos. And uh, if better, if you can do away with it without doing it the entire day. Okay? And even if the preparing of food for the evening meal should certainly not be done until later on in the day. Now, the smotso e shabbos, the minhok is at the paroches, the covering in front of the Arun Kodesh, the ark, is removed, and even someone who is a mourner, who is in Shiva, can go to Shul this coming Tisha B'Av. Right? Now, the Minog is in many Shuls that the lighting during the reading of Eicha is reduced, okay, as we find in Megillas Esther, Excuse me, Echa Gimel Vav Bimachashakim Hoshivani. Literally, he placed me in darkness. And my riv this Saturday night should be in a slow, mournful voice. And we do say Atachonantanu in our Shmona Esrei. After Shmona Esrei, the Kaddish Sholem is said with Tiskabel. And after that, we do not say tiskabel because of sosam tfilasi. Literally, it is in Echa chapter 3, verse 8, our prayers were, quote, shut up and blocked. After Echa, we have the Atokadosh. And this Motsoi Shabbos Vihi Noam is not said. As why that was said at the establishment of the Mishkan. And Tishabab is the time when the Bisa Migdash was destroyed. 
There is a custom that this Motsoi Shabbos, one should uh, deprive themselves of some of the comfort when going to sleep. Normally, if they sleep with two pillows, they should sleep with only one. And I'm not suggesting necessarily that you sleep on the floor, but just understand that it's really uh, something to be taken, quote, unquote, seriously. Um, Now, I am just going to tell you that we do not, remind you, we do not wear talus tillin, tish above morning. We do put them on, however, for mincha in the afternoon. Okay? And uh, the next thing that you need to know is that we make Havdallah this Saturday night. Okay? Um, The Havdallah is over a cup of wine or beer, and Havdalah is only the bracha of Buri Pregafen and Hamavdil. Finally, given that Tishabab is Sunday, there's a machlokes between Svardim and Ashkenazim. According to the Machaber, the Svardim, when Tishabab is over, so too all the restrictions are over. Minog, Ashkenaz, we follow the Ramah, and because the base Hamikdash burnt until midday of the 10th, we observe the practice of not one washing clothes, two ourselves, and three meat eating meat and drinking wine until the um, Until midday, and I take it back in terms of our own uh, bathing that we can do. It's only, again, haircuts. No, bathing, haircuts, washing clothes, and music are prohibited. That's correct. Until noon on Monday. Good, and so too we do not make the brach of shachiano until noon on Monday. Okay, let me close with something from the Parsha. In Parsha's Devarim, go very quickly, chapter 2, Pasuk. Yeah. Very simply, Gnu Lachem Zafona. Ay, ay, ay. What's going on here? Hashem tells B'nai Yisrael, you're not going into Eretz Yisrael, and therefore he is taking them into the desert. And he is, this is chapter 2, verse 3. Penulachem Tzafuna, travel northward. But the Kleokar has a powerful idea. Tzafuna, from the word Tzafun, hidden in the Pesach Seder, the Afikoman, is called Safun because it was hidden from the time that we broke it at the beginning of the Seder, the middle matzah.
us throughout Jewish history. Tzofun, hide it. What does that mean? You're successful, don't flaunt it. You flaunt it, it arouses jealousy of the non-Jews who feel that all your wealth you stole from them. Nothing new under the sun. This is the nature of life. This is the world that we live in. Wake up. And perhaps one of the very powerful lessons of Corona is as much as we didn't want it that way, you can't have a wedding with 30 to 50 people. And guess what? The Chassan and Kala live on happily ever after. And guess what? You've saved a lot of money. And guess what? There was a focus on really the Simcha for the Chassan and Kala as opposed to all the extra trimmings, which really is such a, forgive me, waste. A very powerful idea coming from Parshas Devarim. I take this opportunity to wish everybody a meaningful fast. It's not just that we're fasting, we're connecting. We're connecting with our past, and we're also, please God, connecting with our destiny. Because we sit down to another Tishaba and cry, that is the best guarantee that we will celebrate the coming of Moshiach and the rebuilding of the third Beis HaMikdash. Shabbat Shalom and a meaningful Tisha B'Av to all. J.M. in the A.M. My thanks to Rabbi Yudin. Um, I don't think we're going to be able to get to the conclusion of Rabbi Beryl Wine's lecture. My apologies for that, but we will uh, try to at least sneak in the uh, close to the last few minutes of it on his uh, presentation of USA and Orthodoxy. It is a Friday morning, Erev Shabbos here at JM in the AM. On this July the 16th, the seventh day in the month of Av. And I thank all of you for tuning in. Um, uh, we'll be in Israel Tuesday, Wednesday, and Thursday will be our broadcasts. It all starts with the Omencius Y Monday night. If you'd like to get a special message to the Omencius Y crowd, no problem. Nachum at NachumSiegel.com. Nachum at NachumSiegel.com. Subject line, Yom NCSY. We'll try to include it in our show. That'll air here Tuesday morning. Monday, it'll be our stories of Rabbi Shlomo Kalbach, which is our 10th of Av tradition here at JM in the AM. So we'll have that for you on Monday, an encore presentation of the stories, excuse me, of Rabbi Shlomo Kalbach. So we'll have that for you on Monday. Then Tuesday from Israel, lots of great guests, Tuesday, Wednesday, and Thursday. We are planning on being back here in studio on uh, Friday morning with the uh, uh, with the next weekly update with Malcolm Honline and plenty more on a Friday Erev Shabbos Nachamu next week right here at JM in the AM. Mazdav to David Candle uh, and Sarah Pressburger, a recently engaged couple, Mazal Tov. Mazal Tov to Yaakov and Sarah Gluck on a brand new baby boy, Mazal Tov. And from our app, I noticed a happy birthday to Eva Silber, who's celebrating a birthday tomorrow. Happy birthday from all of us here at JM in the AM. Let's do a few minutes of Rabbi Beryl Wine on the subject of orthodoxy in the United States, information about his lectures, and I thank him 
Uh, his lectures have been the basic staple of our programming over the uh, nine days format. So I thank Rabbi Wine tremendously. I'm sure Matis will include some of his Tisha B'Av lectures on Sunday during JM Sunday. Thank you, Matis, starting at 7 a.m. on Tisha B'Av Day. Very appropriate way to um, to tune in and kick off a Tisha B'Av morning. And uh, I thank Rabbi Wine. 1-800-499-WEIN, 1-800-499-WEIN, RabbiWine.com, RabbiWEIN.com. Deteriorating then and sent them to Jewish day schools. And there were Jewish day schools all over the United States, even in smaller communities. And uh, because of that, uh, Jewish children got a Jewish education. And when you get a Jewish education, your chances of remaining Jewish and observant extremely uh, develop uh, to an extremely high level. And then you had a birth rate. While the uh, non-Orthodox birth rate began to decline, and it's declined for 50, 60 years consecutively, today if you factor out the Orthodox from the birth rate in the United States of Jews, uh, there is less than 1.8. And you need at least 2.2 to replenish what you have. So at this rate, it's going to disappear. The Orthodox have uh, rates that run from 3.5 to 6. So it's not hard to see if demographics hold, and that's always a question. But it's not hard to see what's going to be and how it's going to be. So you have here this basic uh, split in the American Jewish community. I uh, characterize it as the rich getting richer and the poor getting poorer. Orthodoxy became more self-assertive, stronger, and stronger politically as well. It was ironic that... uh, the first Jew who was nominated to be uh, vice president of the United States was not a reform or a conservative Jew. He was a Sabbath observant Jew. His wife's name was Hadassah. I think his daughter has made Aliyah here. I mean, to just think of that. You know, when Barry Goldwater ran for president, against uh, Lyndon Johnson. So he, uh, Goldwater's father, their name was Goldwasser, and uh, Goldwater's grandfather had founded this department store in Phoenix that uh, was uh, very famous and successful. But uh, he he had converted already uh, later in life to become a Christian. And Barry Goldwater was a practicing Episcopalian. But Goldwater remarked that if he was elected, he said it would be ironic in the extreme that the first Jew that was elected as president of the United States was a practicing 
Episcopalian. <laughs> Friday morning broadcast, JM and the AM again. My thanks to Rabbi Beryl Wine. His lectures are 1-800-499-WEIN or Rabbi Wine, W-E-I-N. Ken Lighting in New York, 805. It's Erev Shabbos Parshas Tvarim, Erev Shabbos Chazon, Tisha B'Av tomorrow night and Sunday. Monday, it's stories of Rav Shlomo Kalbach, an encore presentation. Tuesday, we are going to be in Israel with our Yom NCSY show and a whole week of amazing programming. I hope you'll be tuned in. Time to say good Shabbos with Journeys at JM in the AM. i
Brothers and sisters in Israel, we are with you. It's your favorite America's one and only Jewish Moments in the Morning radio program. Heard on listeners, sponsored digital radio. Around the world, the web at NachumSingle.com and the NachumSingle Network, and of course, the beloved NSN app. All right, folks, you know the schedule. Israel next week. Monday, it's the uh, best of uh, the stories to Rav Shlomo Kalbach, an encore presentation. Matas with JM Sunday starting at 7 a.m. Eastern Time, appropriate for Tishabov. Um, what can I say? And I thank you all for tuning in and being part of this. Our uh, soft opening of uh, season number 10 of NSN is this coming uh, this coming Tuesday, and we are very, very much looking forward to it, and I thank all of you very, very much. Have a wonderful Shabbos, an easy fast. I speak to you next Tuesday from Israel, please God. Until then, Nachum Segal reminding you, remember the past, live the present, and trust the future.